Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Um, just another little uh, point of introduction of what we're doing in this study. Our objective is we want to try to understand this book, the book of Revelation, that it seems like for some reason people look at it, scratch their head and go, I can't understand it. It's too hard. It doesn't make any sense. It makes perfect sense. You just got to stare at it a long time. So that's what we've been doing. We've been staring at it a long time. And all of a sudden it started making sense. And so we're doing this study on the uh, book of Revelation and we're looking at it theme by theme. That's a little different than going verse by verse. And so that way we're able to see one subject matter at a time from the book of Revelation, how it relates to other end time scriptures and uh, kind of what's being uh, said in, uh, in the book of Revelation, what's being conveyed. Because we believe that the church needs to understand the book of Revelation because we believe we're living in the generation that at some point we're going to start seeing these things unfold. And so we had better be prepared. So we're spending a lot of time to try to understand this book. And I just... Just as a little point of advertisement, if it's in the Bible, it's already a good idea. So there's no book in the Bible that would be a bad idea to study. And the book of Revelation is 22 chapters long. It's the end book. And it's one that has just, for some reason, had so much shroud of mystery surrounding it. So we're just looking at it and talking through it and making it not mysterious. Because if it's in the Bible, it was meant to be understood by the majority of the earth, which is which have historically been uneducated peasants. And it has to make sense to that person, otherwise God is a meanie. Why did he give the Bible to only the top 1% of scholarly minds on the planet? That's not who the Bible was written for. It was written for folk. And so we are looking at the Bible, the book of Revelation, and studying it in order to gain understanding. So in this study... Uh, we spend now 30, 35 minutes of kind of a presentation. Then we jump into some discussion groups and you talk through stuff and like try to oh, wrestle with it a little bit in discussion groups. And then we come back for a time of Q&A with me where each one of those groups will submit a question and we'll talk through some of that. So that's the format of what we're doing on Saturday nights and what we're doing here with this book of Revelation study. So now I'm going to pray and then we'll look at it. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God, that it's real, it's good, it's true, it's alive and it's active. So we pray tonight, in the name of Jesus, would you illuminate the word of God? Would you help it make sense to us? Would you allow the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding, to capture what you're saying, speaking, feeling, and wanting? Speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. All right, the book of Revelation. Tonight's session is entitled, The Warrior King Coming Out of Heaven. What a title. What a thought process. Warrior king. So not wussy king. Warrior king coming out of heaven. That is just so intense. All right. Well, the book of Revelation has really helped us to expand our understanding of who Jesus is. As we've been looking at various aspects of who Jesus is in the book of Revelation, it's helping us get a, a more broad picture of who this man is. And it's, it's like... You are the lamb, but you are more than the lamb. <laughs> you, you got a whole lot going on besides your lambliness. <clears throat> there are many aspects, facets, faces of Jesus that the book of Revelation reveals to us. And I just want to focus on, because we're going to be talking tonight about Jesus coming out of heaven to the earth as a warrior king. We're going to be talking about that person. I want to just focus for a second on the fact that he's a warrior king who's the eternal God. 
give you a couple of verses there, Deuteronomy 33, 27, and then also in 1 Timothy 1. The eternal God is your refuge. The one who's coming, it's not like the rest of the Bible that speaks about who God is suddenly is untrue. He's bringing with him everything that is all that is said about Jesus, about all that is said about who God is. And so I just want us thinking about this one that's coming out of heaven. It's the eternal God. It's the Genesis 1 creating God. He's coming out of heaven. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and power forever. I just want us to remember that the only God, Jesus, he is fully God. He's the only God and he's eternal. He wears many crowns. We know that verse in Revelation 19, 12. I just want us to look at it real quick. Page one in the notes. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Do you know each one of those crowns has a purpose? And it's not confusing to him. He understands exactly how that works. Now, I don't know about you. I'd have a hard time wearing a hat and a tiara at the same time. But somehow or the other, this man has a way to wear many crowns. Many, many. Each one of those crowns is a representation of his leadership, his lordship, his kingship over some other aspect of life, some other aspect and dominion. I mean, each one of these crowns we're going to be able to recognize when we've got our fully glorified senses. We're going to be able to recognize each one of those crowns for what each one distinctly is and means. And so when you picture Jesus, you want to be somehow picturing him as wearing many crowns, not one. And so each one of those crowns represents a different area of authority and position. I don't know that this is exactly a direct carryover, but I do want to tell you from what the word tells us in the book of Revelation, some of the areas of his position, some of the areas of his lordship, his, his leadership, whether each one of these has a crown or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that these are things revealed about who Jesus is in the book of Revelation that we are told about very clearly. Chapter 1, he's the one among the lampstands. He's walking amongst the churches. Chapter 2 and 3, he's the judge over the church. 4 and 5, he's the slain lamb. Chapter 7, he's the great redeemer. Chapter 19, he's the warrior king. Also, he's the bridegroom king. Chapter 16, he's the god of wrath. Chapter 20, he's the ruler of the next age. The ruler of the coming age. Top of page 2, he's the great architect Chapter 21 and 22 is just awesome. The architect. Just remember, Jesus is a carpenter, okay? And it says he's gone back to heaven to prepare rooms, to carpenter rooms. He's an architect. He's not just making rooms. He made the whole city. He designed it perfectly. It's not like God was wandering around the universe and just suddenly came upon heaven. Wow, there's this really cool city that was built by someone else. He's the architect of that city. He is the alpha and the omega, beginning and end. Now, with all of that in mind, I just want us to, I want us to kind of celebrate the multiple facets of who Jesus is, of his leadership. And now I want to get to the point of tonight. I want to talk about the warrior king coming out of heaven as a warrior king. And he's still everything else that we know him to be. But we're going to look tonight at this aspect of, uh, of him coming. It's Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's 11 through 21, right there in the middle of page 2. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges, and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. 
and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. To do what with? To strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds in the midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed signs on his behalf. And with these signs, they had deluded those, or it says he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive in the lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. We may not like Revelation 19, 11 through 21, but that doesn't much matter at all, friends. I can find a bunch of Bible verses I read and I'm like, first read, I'd kind of like to forget that one, you know, because then you're responsible for it. This is Jesus Christ. This is your Jesus. This is Jesus. Everything else is true too. He's a warrior king who kills people with a sword. You got you to gotta stomach that because that's real about who he is. I want to give you a few other verses that talk specifically about Jesus as a man of war. Do you know it was told of King David that King David could not build the temple because he was a man of war. So I want us to understand this concept of a man of war means, yeah, I like to go to war. What do you do in war? Kill people with swords. Jesus, this is a new side of you. Not used to seeing this. You're a man of war. Look at these verses. This is Isaiah 42. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. These are end time verses. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and triumph over his enemies. Isaiah 42, also a little bit later. He poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. So specifically, this type of burning anger is described as war anger, the violence of war. He poured out on them war, and then it was described as his violent anger, the violence of war. So intense. Isaiah 13, top of page 3. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. I just want to make it really clear. The Lord is mustering an army for war. Not an army for, you guys all need Jesus, get saved. We like that army. I'm glad to be a part of that army. That is not what this is talking about. This is an army for war, like what you think of when you hear the word war. That's what we're talking about. The warrior king doing war stuff, equal sign, killing people with a sword. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to like this. I'm just saying we can't pretend it's not in the Bible. And this has never happened before. 
Revelation 19, we read just a moment ago, that is still a future moment. It's when he appears in the sky and he's coming back. When he comes back, he's coming back as a warrior king, marching out of heaven to do war. So intense. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about the way that he returns. First, this king is preceded by plagues. Now, that's been a big point of our study in this series. We've talked about the plagues that come before him. But look what this king is doing with those plagues. Part of that is to soften the ground, soften the, the territory. Part of it is to inflict punishment on those that have been slaying Jesus' bride, the church, all the martyrdom that will occur in the last days. Look what Isaiah 26 verse 9 says, though. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. This is the king trying to instruct the nations in righteousness and using judgments as one of his methods to accomplish that. When this king comes, he's preceded by plagues. When this king comes, he's also going to release that chaos judgment. If that's an idea that you're like, what in the world? I gave you about, I don't know, 15 verses on it. I just wanted to, to see it because it's another piece of this warrior king coming. You know, kings, when they go to war, they're looking for strategies to win the battle. Things like the high ground, things like the element of surprise, things like, you know, more troops than the other guy. You're looking for strategies to win. Jesus has the single most peculiar strategy to win the war. Let's read it. This plague with which the Lord will, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Jesus is like, ah, we got this. I'll just have all the bad guys start killing each other. They'll just get real confused and think that it's like me. And they'll, they'll try to kill me. But it's their friend that they came to battle with. That is like the most intense way to get the upper hand in a fight. Okay, I just confuse them and they start beating each other up. This is part of the way the warrior king is coming to do war. Now remember, the context of that, that's going to be the Antichrist and the Antichrist armies. Okay, that's what this is uh, speaking about. The king will dash them to pieces. Look at these verses. Revelation uh, 2, 27. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. There's no way to make that uh, symbolic and spiritual and mean something nice. It means exactly what it says. He's got a big stick and he's going to whoop people with it. <laughs> he's going to dash the nations to, pottery, like, to, to pieces like pottery. And he's going to rule over them with an iron scepter. That means he's not playing around. He means business. If he says it, it's law. And you don't mess with him. May the praise, be, uh, praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind the kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. These are, these are wild passages about Jesus dashing the nations to pieces. I'm not going to read part D, but I gave you a bunch of verses there that describe gory details about him scattering the bodies of his foes across the earth. Now, I don't, I don't want to spend time on it just because we got too many things other to talk about, but I, I wanted to put that in there because I want you to understand your Bible gives great detail about what King Jesus is going to do as a warrior king when he comes back. He's going to do warrior king stuff exactly what you're thinking, like Braveheart movie. 
I mean, he's, he's going to do warrior king like what you're thinking, those medieval movies and, and what they did when they would march against an enemy. He's going to do those things because that's what the Bible says he's going to do because he's coming to defend the honor of his bride. He's coming to make wrong things right. This is what we're reading when we read Revelation chapter 19, the passage we read a minute ago about him coming out of heaven. It says he comes to wage war. He's coming out of heaven to pick a fight. To wage war, Revelation 19. All right, let's keep going. He comes with the armies of heaven. This is like the most bizarre thing ever if you've never thought about it. Revelation 19, 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. I just want to focus on a, a couple points here. Armies, multiple. Armies, more than one army. Heaven, get your army ready. Well, which one? We've got 72. Which army are you referring to today? Well, you know, all of them. Oh, all the armies. You mean Revelation chapter 19, 14. Yeah, that's, I think we mean that. Yeah. There are armies, multiple armies in heaven. And again, I don't pretend to know exactly what all that looks like. I just know we've got the four living creatures up there and those are some interesting looking guys. And if there's an army of them, I'm already scared. There are armies in heaven, multiple armies, meaning ranks and file and purpose and size and weaponry and function and training. I mean, armies, multiple, so crazy. Next, it says these armies, multiple lots, they're all riding on white horses. How many horses are in heaven? So many horses. <laughs> So much horse manure. So many horses. Now listen, you need to take your Bible seriously. You believe John 3.16. It says that if we believe in the son that was given, then we're saved. I mean, we believe that. You need to believe in Revelation 19.14 too. There are horses in heaven. If you don't believe that or don't like that, that doesn't matter. We're not getting a vote. It's in the Bible. Jesus is coming back with the armies of heaven and they're riding on white horses and it sounds like there's millions of them or more. And right now they're in heaven. Or at least right before that they are. So you're talking about, I'm just going to make up the number, you know, 40 million white horses in heaven. Friends, that's a bunch of pasture land. That's a bunch of stables. That's a bunch of horseshoe makers. You want to start making heaven real instead of ethereal. You want to start getting heaven concrete. It has horses. Horses don't just float around in clouds. They like clomp around on the ground and stuff and eat and drink and poop. All right. Tons of white horses. Next, let's look at uh, some of these armies. Now, I'm not saying these are all the armies. I'm just, I'm identifying a few of them that we know of. The dead in Christ from generations past. All of those who have died in Christ through all generations past. So you're talking about, you know, Charles Finney. <laughs> Charles Finney is going to maybe get himself a white horse and come. And the, you're talking about all these, uh, all these believers from generations past. Then, in a different category in my mind, and it may not work this way in heaven. Heaven might see it all the same. But in my mind, I'm seeing the generation of the most martyred. 
Our generation is going to experience the single greatest number of martyrdom that has ever happened in human history. That's what our Bibles say. It's one of the reasons we need to study the end times so that we can prep our hearts for what the Bible prophesies is coming, persecution and mass martyrdom across the globe. The greatest number of martyrdom ever. So I don't know how many believers there have been in all of human history, but just remember each generation, the population on the planet keeps getting bigger and the church keeps getting bigger. So it makes sense that we've got more believers right now on the planet than we've ever had in human history altogether. So how many martyred saints are there going to be just in this generation? I'd call that a whole nother army. Next, those who are suddenly transformed. Paul says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Those that are not martyred before Jesus comes, those that are still very much alive, they all receive resurrected bodies, and now they're, I don't know, an army or a segment of an army or something. They, I'm just calling it an army, and maybe I've got my, my uh, language or my uh, uh, you know, terminology wrong, but... One way or the other, all of those that are still alive at the coming of Christ are suddenly transformed, and now they're part of these armies that are coming. Then it says, all the angels. Check this, Matthew 25, 31, bottom of page five in your notes. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, meaning when Revelation 19 happens, okay, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the angels with him. Heaven's going to be quiet for at least a minute. Everybody left. You just imagine heaven. Like I just, just go up there now and just kind of imagine walking around, seeing all this stuff and all this activity and sounds and stuff. You go up there on this day and it's, it's a ghost town. Where'd everybody go? Oh, they're all down fighting the Antichrist. Whoa, what are you doing here? Oh, I don't know. I got to get down there, man. What did, what did I do wrong? I, I missed the fight. And so all the angels, that's a ton. Listen, we've got some descriptions of some pretty mighty angels, warrior angels, all sorts of angels. All of Riker's angels, Lord. <laughs> uh, and so, so we've got a description of all these angels that are going to fight this battle. Top of page six. Now, I want to get really detailed here. Here's a, just a thought, okay? If it's in the Bible, it's safe ground. If it's in the Bible, it's the Holy Spirit intending that the church would understand. So there's not stuff written in the Bible that's like, you know, like forbidden. There's not stuff that's written in the Bible that's like, oh, that's scandalous. We shall not speak of such things. No, it's the Bible. It's for you to understand. It was written for you to understand. There is a lot of information about Jesus coming back and getting a lot of blood, human blood on him. There's a lot of information on that. Now, the reason I, reason I included a whole section on it is because it makes this so real. You know, a warrior king, what does that mean? You know, he opens his mouth and says, bad, everybody just gets saved or dies. That is not what happens. He pulls a sword out of his mouth and he starts striking down the wicked that have been persecuting and martyring his church. That's what's happening. When Jesus gets human blood that isn't his, this isn't the lamb slain blood. It's human blood. We're, we'll, we'll see it from people that he's been killing. When, that, when you get that on you, that's like as real as tactile as like, 
oh my gosh, when it says warrior king, it means warrior king. It makes it as real as it can get. And if it's not just one random passage, it's over and over. It's the Holy Spirit trying to communicate to us aspects of who he is. Isaiah 63, one through six. Look at this. This is Isaiah. And he goes, who is this? He looks and he's, he's seeing the future picture of Jesus coming in the, in the uh, Revelation 19 passage. He's seeing it happen. And he's so befuddled, he's confused. Who is this with his garments stained crimson? That means red. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments. And I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My own arm worked salvation for, for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So intense. Who is this? Well, who is righteous and mighty to save? There's no one righteous, no, not one. Spare Jesus. So, I mean, this is Jesus, okay? The blood of his enemies is found on him. It says he's described as one treading the wine press. It's like the, the thought process is it's somebody out there and they've got their bare feet and their tootsies are in the grapes. And squish, 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 squish. And all the grapes have got grape juice and it's squirting out the side, you know, down through, through the whatever system or whatever and it gets in so they can make wine and grape juice and stuff. The problem is they're not grapes, they're humans. And Jesus is going squish, 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 squish. <laughs> he says, I've trodden the wine press of the nations. You want to know what this is on my clothes? It's human blood. I've trodden the planet like a wine press. The people were the grapes, the wicked were. It's my wrath that's in operation here. You're like, this is so intense. What happened to I am meek and lowly? You know, I am gentle of heart. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Like, yes, all that's true too. He says, did you see this? It says, the day of vengeance was in my heart. We need to understand this. Jesus's mercy has an end point, the start of the day of his vengeance. There is a day where in that moment, they can't say, I'm sorry, uncle, save me. He's like, no, no, you pass that point. Up until that point, mercy, 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 mercy. But he also, at the same time as he says mercy, he has in his heart the day of his vengeance the day of his wrath, the day of retribution, the day where he makes wrong things right, the day where he judges those that have come against his bride. He has the day in his heart. It's just really intense, but it's right there. He treads the winepress of the fury of wrath God Almighty. That's Revelation 19.15. We read that earlier when we were reading the Revelation 19 passage. That's just another phrase right out of there. And it's, it goes right back to Isaiah 63 that we just read. So intense. Revelation 14 says similarly, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle over the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. 
They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is, what did we decide, 120 miles? How about 120 miles is the distance on that? The horse's bridle. So you're talking a horse up, up to here. Oh my gosh. How much blood is that? Ah, squish, 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 squish. To the nations. To the wicked that will rise against Jesus in the last generation and gather for that final battle. Guys, this is our story. Like we're in all this. We are part of those armies. <laughs> Like we are part of Jesus's solution. We are, we are right in the middle of all this. This Jesus is real. Jesus is not a fairy tale. Jesus is not a now I lay me down to sleep. Jesus is real. He's God. He's every bit of everything that the word of God says, every bit of it. And he's tactile, real, and he's Jewish and he's five foot nine. I don't know. He's something like he's, he's real. And he's coming back out of heaven as a warrior king to be sure up close battle with a sword, last page. This is so intense and it's in your Bible and you just can't shake it. Revelation 19, 21, talking about all of those that weren't killed in the chaos plague, all of those that weren't killed in the judgments. It says this, Revelation 19, 21, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. It's Jesus. Isaiah 34, the Lord was angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon all their armies, all their armies. Just so you know, that's never happened before. There's never been a time in human history where God's wrath was on all the armies of the planet. But there will be when all the armies gather against Jerusalem and gather against Jesus in the final generation. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice. The Lord has a great slaughter. Their land will be drenched with blood for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. So intense. Listen, I just want to tell you something. We need to be a people that can stomach whatever the word says, intense or happy, warm and fluffy. We sing a lot of songs around here about happy, warm and fluffy. We need to embrace happy, warm and fluffy. I love it. We also need to embrace intense because it's the same Bible that gave it to us. All right. Well, now we're going to break up into groups for discussion. We'll go around the room and, uh, and ask uh, group leaders each uh, for their question, from one from each group. And then I'll repeat the questions just so that those that are watching online or those that listen to the recording later uh, are able to hear the question, not just the answer. So as far as translation of how our life now related to our placement in those armies, uh, one thing that is clear is that our placement in eternity, not the fact of eternity, salvation is free, but your position in eternity is worked for. Over and over, the New Testament talks about Jesus giving rewards to those that diligently seek him, those that do specific you know, tasks, not your salvation, you cannot earn your salvation. But after your salvation, once we're all in the gate, all the positions of heaven are gonna look different and it's all based off of what we did. It says that your rewards 
based upon what you did, what you've done. Uh, he's going to come and reward according to what we've done. It says it 30 times. I mean, it's, it's so many times. So how does that play into the specifics of the, the battle scenario and uh, the armies of heaven? I think it'll, ha- it'll play in there somewhere. Uh, how? Uh, the question that was specifically asked was more along the lines of, okay, if you labor in teaching, you get more of a teaching anointing. If you labor in uh, you know, evangelism, you get more of an evangelism anointing on earth. We all know that. That's a normal practice we're all familiar with. If you go after something for a decade, you're going to be way better at that thing a decade later than when you started. Uh, and the question was, how would that translate? I don't know that that part is going to translate. I think it's going to have way less to do with uh, what gifts of the spirit or ministry realms did we invest in and way more to do with how much righteousness we pursued. So I think the, the reward system is all based off of righteousness, pursuit, humility, fruit of the spirit, the entire New Testament reward system that Jesus is the loudest voice of in the New Testament, talking about eternal rewards. So rewards in the age to come based off of the way that we posture ourselves and live our lives now. It's all based off of acts of righteousness, not based off of ministry pursuits. And so I would think that as that translates into placement in the army, some version of that is probably real. And I think we probably ought to be asking the Lord, Lord, what am I going to be doing that day in that battle? Where am I going to be? And what, what can I do to change that? Like, where I want to be doing something different, maybe. Um, so I, these are, I mean, this sounds like a crazy person conversation to have with Jesus, except that your Bible says it's real. So maybe the crazy people are the ones that don't believe the Bible. Maybe the ones that are going to be the most rewarded and and fat and happy in heaven are going to be the ones that actually believe that our Bibles were true and we took it at what it said. Great question. Look at the back. All right, so the question was, uh, even there's references of, you know, the, the prophet and the king sending out the singers in front of the other armies, and they were to go first and to, to sing the song of the Lord, and, and his mercy endures forever, and they were to sing it, and as a result of them singing it, proclaiming it, like all the bad things, all the bad guys got, you know, uh, routed or whatever. So the question that uh, Luke asked was, is there any precedence or any ideas uh, related to order of the armies uh so if this army is all chariots and this army is all horses and this army is all footmen and this army is all the angels and this army is this and that how does all that look i don't know the answer except that it will be strategic uh whatever jesus does it won't be like oh no they went first oh you guys were supposed to be 13th oh i can't believe it you snuck to the front you sneakies i mean it's not i don't think it's going to be like that i think there's going to be very strategic efforts related to that and and jesus is going to come just remember he's the king and king lord of lords he's the warrior he's the general of the army the general of the armies there will be order on that day it will not be chaotic it will not be random it will be according to strategic plan that no doubt that battle strategy is already written in heaven and like you could actually go to the battle strategy room if he'd let you brief in on the mission plan and be like, okay, they're first and then them. And then hey, you didn't even know these guys existed. They're third. Uh, and, then, and then, I mean, it's, it already exists. It's up there. So if somebody wants to take a trip to heaven and get the blueprints and come back and tell us, anointing to all of you to have heavenly encounters. Amen. Um, all right. Question. Okay. So in what way is all the blood of the slain a sacrifice and, and how, does, uh, how does that all work? So... The, um, 
the concept of sacrifice in, in the Old Testament and, and specifically uh, the Isaiah 34 is referencing the, the temple sacrificial system in, in, in reference to this. It was about atonement. It was about, I'm going to use a different word that's not in there, but this was part of what was meant. It's about reset. It's about make right. It's about restitution. And so those sacrifices were in order to make restitution. Well, Jesus is coming back to a very, very, very bad planet. It's very, very, very bad. And he's going to offer this sacrifice and make restitution and reset and get things reset for the next age under his leadership. And so that's a big piece of that whole parallel there is he's talking to Jews in Isaiah 34 who understood the sacrificial system. And he's saying, I want you guys to understand, I'm going to do like a really big version of this at the end, but it's not going to be animals. It's going to be bad guys. And I'm going to do this with a very similar thought process in mind, and we're going to set the record straight. And so those animals were substitutionary deaths. When the uh, last day's judgments come, the, the deaths are not substitutionary. They're, well, in some ways, they're substitutionary for history. But they're actually, that guy martyred somebody last week. That guy dies today. I mean, it's, there's very much a retribution of the sin in that generation, the retribution coming upon them uh, in that sacrifice. And so it's, that's a much bigger subject, but very intuitive question. That, that's great. Yeah, where are the resistors in the middle of this battle? Yeah, great question. Hiding. Uh, far, far away if they know what's good for them. Um, so uh, uh, just as a, a point of reference... Um, at the end time drama, and this is a subject that we've covered in previous sessions, and if this is a new idea to you, I want to implore you to go listen to this session or two. I want to implore you to do that because you'll see it in your Bible and it'll make more sense to you. There's not two groups at the end, there's three. There's those that have taken the mark of the beast. There's those that are the redeemed that have not taken the mark of the beast. They love Jesus. And there is a small group, but a small group when you're talking about 10 billion people might be 30 million people. Some millions probably. A small group, small percentage that neither took the mark of the beast and they do not love Jesus. They've not given their life to Jesus yet. They have not done either of those things. And we refer to them as the resistors. The way the scripture speaks of them is those who are left or those who remain. They are the ones that Jesus reboots the planet with in the next age and starts the millennium with. Okay, So all the passages that are about people doing things in the millennium, it's that group of people and their kids and their kids' 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 question was, what are they doing when this all happens? They are freaking out. <laughs> okay, so they, they, they are watching Jesus come in. They've watched the armies of the nations all get plane tickets and boat rides and walk and march and everything. The armies of 100% of the nations have gathered over in Jerusalem. And then you've got Jesus coming out of the sky with a sword coming out of his mouth. And all these armies, they are flipping out of their minds. And they're also deciding in that moment, you know what, I think we missed it. <laughs> Jesus is real. I didn't believe in it, but there he is. He's in the sky. He's on a horse. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, wow. Okay. I guess the stories were true. Going to have to fix this religious spirit thing I've got here in just a minute after I get out of the way of this end time battle. So they're going to be all over the earth. And in all honesty, I'm being playful. In all honesty, I think the majority of them won't even know it's happening, except that they'll see the procession of Jesus in the sky. So they will have seen that. But 
I mean, the TVs aren't going to be working. Broadcast stations going to be down. Remember, the water's all blood. The earth has been pummeled by all sorts of giant hailstones and everything else. Power lines are down. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why the normal lines of communication that we're used to today are totally going to not be happening. And so the majority of the resistors, I honestly believe the majority of them are, are either going to be hiding or just definitely keeping a low profile uh, because they're, they're trying to continue to live and there's the Antichrist who's coming and all this stuff. And so I think that the majority of the resistors across the earth are going to wind up, I'll just say low profile instead of the word hiding. I'll just say they're, they're trying to stay out of trouble as opposed to charging into trouble. Okay. And so, uh, so I think if they saw this amassing, they'd be probably taking a couple of steps backwards uh, out of Jerusalem would be my guess. Um, question. What's the advantage of studying the nuanced factors of these types of details? The, the fact that we're going to be in an army and Jesus is going to be bloody and we're going to be with him and, you know, those kinds of things. What's the advantage of us studying this versus throughout history, you know, people that have lived godly lives that have gone to be with the Lord, they're also going to be part of this army. Maybe they just didn't even know it. Is that more or less the question? Yeah, especially at that point where we've all been Got it. Once we've all got resurrected bodies at that moment. Okay, so here's a big point. Um, I would just encourage you to, to chew on this concept. Find Bible verses about it. Daniel chapter 12 is a great place to start. Daniel chapter 12, Daniel has just been given one of the most profound end time visions, perhaps the most profound end time vision of any prophet to date. He was just given the most amount, I'm going to say, about uh, end time information. He's been given the most end time information, and you might interpret that statement a little bit, but, but by and large. And the angel comes up and goes, oh yeah, by the way, Daniel, seal it up because there's no more, we're not going to let this revelation, we're not going to let clarity on this come out until the time of the end. It says seal up the scroll until the time of the end. Seal up eschatology, seal up understanding of the end time events, seal up real clarity on this, seal up people really caring much about this until the last generation, because that's the generation that's going to need it. So throughout history, the subject of the end times, part of the reason you might even enter in tonight and go, I don't know, I've never really thought a lot about the end times. It wasn't time before. It wasn't time. A generation ago, it still wasn't time. Not to give ourselves to the, like, the fullness and the study and the clarity. It, it's, it's becoming time. And that scroll is being opened. Proof of it is we've got greater clarity right now than we did you know, a, a, a generation ago. We've got greater clarity than we did five years ago. We, us, people, here. There, that scroll is open again. There is end time revelation that is now available and it's, it's nothing new. It's, I'm not talking about have a new vision or a new prophet and a new generation. I'm talking about old, old, old Bible, old, but understanding about passages that were always there, but there was no clarity before, but there's clarity now. That's what the vision being opened up means. And so, so in, in many ways, aunt Betty, bless her soul. Uh, <laughs> she didn't need it. <coughs> But we're gonna. And I'll just say this, just as a little point of like, let's care about people that are beyond ourselves for a moment. If it's not us, you better believe our kids need this understanding. Who will teach them? Oh, hope they figure it out on their own. That's not good enough for me. I look at my three and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) 
Let me get some clarity, and I'll teach you, okay? You'll start off with a good starting point. You know, the next generation is going to need this even more than we are. Who's going to teach them that? Let's not hand them the bankruptcy our, fa- our fathers handed us. You know? And again, part of that was it wasn't time, but it's time. So great question. And, and bottom line, the answer, you're going to live it. That's why you want to understand it. It's in the Bible. You want to live it. And I'll just throw in a, a, a secondary point, worship leader, team, whoever, you can come on up. I'll just throw a secondary point. I can't think of anything in my personal life that has made Jesus more real to me than studying the end times. Because the details are in the thousands about what he's going to do, who he is, what he says, how he acts, what he's after, how he feels about me, what he's going to do with the church. The details are innumerable. And all of a sudden, the man becomes a real person. And so I'll just tell you, I can't think of anything. I love the Bible. I loved it before we started studying the end times. I can't think of anything that has made the person of Jesus more real to me than the study of eschatology. So, Father, we pray for help. We want to understand the Bible. We want it to make sense. And we want to have the spirit of revelation uh, resting on us. We want to have clarity. We want you, Holy Spirit, to connect Bible ideas and Bible passages and books that we would understand the whole storyline. And so we pray, God, would you give this group of people the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we study the word in Jesus' name. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.